they've got this exceptional camouflage which gives the illusion of depth. Watch out, there could be a Gaboon Viper about. Welcome back. This is episode 65 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Ben Marshall and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. Uh, what do we have for people this bi-week slash fortnight, Tom? Hello, Ben. Yes. Um, well, I thought we were doing an episode about snakes, but then the more I read, the more I realised you'd led me down the garden path. And this is a, really an episode about toads. Yeah, Trojan toads. Well, <laughs> yeah, suppose, Trojan toads. No, that would be like the toads were hiding in a larger toad or when really toads. it's a trojan viper yeah or yeah. it could be like yeah i'm not sure how you would fit this uh relationship into the trojan horse analogy i don't well, know mm, yeah. maybe the toad was concealed inside a snake yeah well that would be that that's just absurd i mean that would be a horrible time for both the snake and the toad but um, no, we're going to be talking about some cool skin of a really neat viper, and then we're going to be talking about a toad which is emulating the appearance of a viper in order to, uh, well, in order for personal gain, really. Oh yeah, it's purely purely selfish, purely yeah. selfish. Is this? That's just how toads are. They are, yeah, universally quite selfish animals, yeah. and um, <laughs> apparently the ones in. Sub-Saharan Africa, Democratic Republic of Congo are no different. But before we get into that, I think we should spend a little bit of time discussing the skin of the West African Gaboon Viper. Yeah, okay. So this is by Spinner, Gorb, Balmert, Beckman and Westhoff, uh, published in Plus One. Non-contaminating camouflage, multifunctional skin Micro ornamentation in the West African Gaboon Viper. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, when was it published? 2014. Yeah, we're rolling about the clock a wee bit on these two papers, but... Well, actually, no, just this paper. But it's worth it, because it is... I think this is the first time we've done anything about the microstructure of snake scales, right? Um... I remember talking about flannel texture, but I believe that was some sort of turtle tongue. Yeah, I think you're right. I can't remember doing anything about scales before. It's not really um, in our in our remit very frequently because it's very it's not very ecology focused, is it? It's more no. looking for a microscope and lab based, which we tend not to do as much of. Yeah, this paper was definitely out of my comfort zone. It was like sort of much more geared towards kind of um mechanics and yeah yeah there's a, there's a specific word for the study of like materials and that's textiles it. <laughs> I, it, I, I doubt but, but textiles is more of like a clothes sort of context isn't it um yeah but yeah this was very sort of well it's just very technical wasn't it and it's mm. just about you know it's it's got a lot of specifics about the skin of the animal and then later on in the paper they relate it to kind of some um, technical applications which might be useful for humans, which is always quite interesting to read. Um, you know, getting that perspective is quite insightful because when I read this paper, I was just thinking, well, that's pretty handy. Imagine a snake being able to do that. But then obviously there are people in the world who are like, perhaps this could be a million dollar idea the snake skin has had and, you know, revolutionise some area of 
I don't know. Sometimes it's something quite shady, isn't it? It's like a lot of the color, a lot of the color change research is like, how can we use this to disguise our people and blow each other up? Um, but hopefully, if, in this case, I'm not sure that that's what they're looking at. No, I reckon um, they just make better, better waterproof jackets, which would be sweet. Like I hate being wet. So, well, I mean, with that, I mean, I'm, I'm giving, I'm giving away some of the, some of the, some of the findings here. But shall we immediately start with a? Very detailed and uh, vivid description of uh, the West African Gaboon Viper. <laughs> yeah, I think we should. So, yeah. I mean, they're exceptionally beautiful snakes. They're um, so they're vipers. Um, they're not pit vipers. So they are from the family or the subfamily Viperinae yeah, within Viperidae. Um, so no pits, and quite confusingly, we're talking about the West African Gaboon Viper. Which is Bitis rhinoceros. Yes. There are two not Bitis quite Gabonica. similar. No, not Bitis gabonica, which you'd think from the name. But also, there's another layer of confusion because there's two similar and closely related species, um, which form a neat little clade. There's a paper by Wittenberg et al. If you're interested in the like phylogeography and systematics of this group of vipers, um, but the other two that are most closely related are the Gaboon viper, so not the West African Gaboon viper, the Gaboon viper. Uh, which is Bitis gabonica, which we'll be talking about in a little while. And there's also the rhinoceros viper, which is called Bitis nasicornis. This is what annoys me, is that the Latin doesn't match up with a common name with the rhinoceros viper. It's so stupid. It's like you've got the West African gaboon viper. Well, I think obviously the Bitis rhinoceros came first, right? So it was Bitis rhinoceros, or we'll call that the West African gaboon viper. And then you've got the rhinoceros viper as a common name for Bitis nasicornis. It's like... I like Nasicornis as a name. I like that a lot. I like them both. And they mean the same thing, of course. They both mean variations of nose, horned. Yeah. So rhinoceros is like ancient Greek and Latin. That means the same thing in both. Latin took the Greek. Rhinoceros just means nose, horned. And then Nasicornis is Latin for horned nose. Um, Apparently Nasi, which means of the nose, is actually like medical Latin. So that's quite cool. Hmm. and cornus just means horned in normal Latin. So they both mean the same thing. But just the fact that the common name doesn't match up. Like, if you've got a snake called Bitis rhinoceros, call it the rhinoceros viper. Like, do us all a favour. <laughs> well, I mean, even even if it was the West African rhinoceros viper, that would still be better than West African gaboon viper, right? It would. It would. Yeah, you're at right. Least, and at least there's a bit of, bit of consistency there. Yeah, I mean, I can see why they wanted to call them a similar thing because the West African Gaboon Viper and the non-West African Gaboon Viper, they both look virtually the same. The, yes. the only way to tell them apart in the field seems to be the mouth triangles beneath the eyes. But if you Google one, if you Google the scientific name of one, you get pictures of both. So yeah, there's obviously a lot of confusion. And I mean, mm. I guess for most people, it doesn't really matter. Um, <laughs> but yeah, common names have definitely failed us in this instance. But... That doesn't detract from the fact that these are incredibly beautiful and cool snakes. Oh, um, one of my favourites, I think. Ah, uh, they are stunning. They are just, like, main, mainly because of just the weird body shape these guys have. They've got to be the heaviest, stubbiest vipers you'll ever see. Yeah, Great. well, I mean, they are the heaviest venomous snake, I think. Um, are they? they? I think so. 8.5 kilograms? I'm trying to think. Don't Bushmasters vie for that title? Hmm. They may well, but I feel like a big West African Gaboon Viper is a huge snake. Like, 
and so thick. Like you just don't get that density of animal with a bushmaster. With a bushmaster, yeah. Mm. Um, I just put in heaviest venomous snake into Google, top hit. Guinness World Records, Eastern Diamondback. Oh, really? Okay, which yeah, we've actually talked about 5. that on the podcast 5.5 to 6.8, well. but the heaviest ever was 15 kilograms. Oh, right, okay. But, like, was that... So, a, if that's not a wild individual, That's not then a wild individual, no way. I don't... <laughs> that that doesn't count in my books. No, I don't think so. Like, I mean, that's that's the different record. That's, like, what, which snake can humans make the heaviest? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's like <laughs> yeah that's not a good that's not necessarily a healthy record to put put out to people um there's some pretty yeah like there's going to be some snakes which are enormous if that's what you're doing um but okay so maybe they're not the biggest it says in my I, notes uh, 8.5 kilos so yeah, it's a big see, snake see i reckon know. i reckon maybe in the wild this gabonica might be the heaviest i think yeah, that's quite reckon... a reasonable reasonable shout but Eastern Diamondbacks are hench. They're big, so they're chunky. And I'm yeah. pretty sure, I'm pretty sure on this podcast, I've really talked about that a lot before. How big they are! I'm basically just any snake that's big and is in front of me is the biggest snake. I'm pretty prone to hyperbole, so you know whatever. <laughs> but I think a, a record they do hold, which is quite well accepted, is they have the longest fangs of any snake at about two inches long. So. These West African gaboon vipers have got some big fangs, and they're mm. long. You know, a six-foot-long venomous snake that weighs eight point five kilograms. It's a beast. Yeah. Um, and like we said, they're so beautiful. They've got these really intricate skin patterns, geometric shapes of black, whites, and browns. Like, they just look mesmerizing. They just look like they're covered in really nice hourglasses of all different shades. Mm. And that striking. Well, well, we'll go into a lot more detail with the uh, striking dark. Uh, like triangles that connect the bottom of the head to the eye. They put, sort of point up diagonally and hit the eye. Um, yeah. I suppose similar sort of patterning to some pythons in that regard with that sort of dark... And boas too. Yeah, that yeah. dark stripe. Mm. Yeah, it sort of breaks up the outline of the face. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, so talking about their black coloration, there yeah. was a 2013 paper which is also by Spinner et al., same, similar authors, and they basically describe these tiny little structures on the scales of these West African gaboon vipers. And in the areas with black pigmentation, the scales have these, they describe them as leaf-like nanostructures. I don't know what they look like to me. They just look like little nubs. Those little nubs. To me, in... to me, I would go more descriptive than little nubs. Yeah. I would, I would say, you... you know those beautiful cast landscapes, the limestone casts in, in southern Madagascar, right? Wow. You're the ups and downs, spiky. You know, you've got the little little lemurs jumping around, having a great time on the spiky. Shafakas. Is it Shafakas along the... I, feel like <laughs> I don't it know. Could I just be. wanted to say Shafaka. I don't know where mammals live. So I don't think it's the injuries, because I think the injuries are further north, but I'm not entirely sure. But anyway, imagine that, that not sort of cast landscape. Not surprised they picked up a few injuries on that landscape. <laughs> behave <laughs> you take that cast landscape and you just smooth it out a wee bit so you take out all the jaggediness and you just sort of round it off but you still got these really sharp repeated ups and downs that are quite deep almost like very skinny maces and you line those all up and you head into something that maybe looks slightly like the black areas mm. 
on yeah. a Gaboon Viper. Absolutely. Excellent description. Way better than what I said, which was just nubs. And if you zoom in on these little structures, which are like these beautiful cast landscapes in tiny miniature, then they're covered in little striations. So they've just got really high surface area. And there's these little lines all over the place that look like canyons and gorges. Um, very complex sort yeah. of structure. You know what they um, remind me of? Go for another anecdote. You ever seen a sea anemone without its... Not a sea anemone, a sea urchin without all its spikes and stuff, and it's got the like tiny little indentations and ridges in that. Oh yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. That's what I see. That's what it reminds okay. me of, like a sort of coral come shell come urchin sort of thing. Yeah, I think you could actually even liken the microscopic little bits to fingers. Like our fingerprints aren't that dissimilar to what's yes, on. Yes, yes, that's a good. That's a, yes, yes, very much so. Yeah, yeah. So. Essentially, you've got these really complicated structures at a microscopic scale, which are only found in the black pigmented areas of the skin of the snake. So scales in the black areas have these leaf-like nanostructures with the little raised stripes. And what they do is they allow very, very minimal light to be reflected, which is as little as 11% in the ultraviolet infrared range. And in combination with that, the black pigment, which actually colors the cells, uh, obviously absorbs a lot of light. So this combination of really low reflectance, so very little light being reflected, and lots of black pigment absorbing as much of that light as possible, what it does, it makes it appear to the person viewing the snake as if they're looking at something very, very dark, which gives like a three-dimensional impression in combination with the rest of the skin. So you basically have normal skin with all the different colors, and then you have these like exceptionally dark areas. And what that does, they think, is it tricks the viewer into thinking they're looking at a three-dimensional structured image where the black bits could be gaps underneath leaves, gaps underneath twigs, small holes, whatever it might be. And because of this complex structure that we've just described, it has the dual benefit of not only producing this insanely dark black, which tricks the eye, but it can also be viewed from any angle. So regardless of which way you're looking at the snake, this camouflage is going to work. Which is mad. that's, That's a brilliant description of why why the dark is so dark why is that so important and it's just yeah it's breaking up something that looks like a snake into shapes which are distinctly unsnake like yeah yeah absolutely and so that was the 2013 paper which is pretty awesome very cool stuff but these scientists were not satisfied with having discovered that the snakes were super dark and they wanted to know if maybe this skin was also capable of some other wacky features and so they thought, why don't we get it wet and see what happens there? <laughs> so they decided to start fogging their shed snake skins and yeah, well, the, see the what fog- happens. The fogging was to do with something else, wasn't it? That was to do with the uh, the second aspect. The initial um, water stuff was was putting on droplets. So not yeah, using they, any yeah. sort of fa- fancy fogging machine, right? Oh, were they just putting drops on? I they were they literally were putting drops them. on. Yeah. yeah. And this was them trying to measure the... Um, hydrophobicity how terrified it is of water yeah and i mean the methods for this were pretty damn complicated it made my brain ache yeah yeah no i i I feel i feel we uh skip over the (laughs) yeah the methods broadly and just get to the what they found because that's actually what's it's it's methods that are to do with assessing well material sort of substructure and micro micro ornamentation as they term it so it's Mm. 
yeah, I mean, dry. It's real dry. Yeah, it's real dry. That's what I got from it. Super dry. <laughs> but, so you got the, the hydrophobia stuff. Oh, sorry. You're saying the methods were dry. I'm saying the skin oh, was very dry. Well, the skin was dry in places. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So well, we had the dark that, areas that were dry. crazy hydrophobia for the dark areas, but not quite the same level of uh, hydrophobia in the paler areas or on the underside, on the ventral side. That's so right. It was, yeah. it was demonstrably unique to the dark areas. Yeah. So basically, if you get this snake wet or there's a nice dew, perhaps, and the snake is sitting on the ground, uh, what will happen is the dark areas will, the water will just run off them, even at a very uh, shallow angle. They're really super hydrophobic. They, you know, they just repel water due to the structure of the, well, the nanostructure of the cells that we've kind of discussed already. And so what they think is that that gives the effect of, even if you look at a snake which is damp, you know, you never get a sort of consistent sheen on the animal. Yeah. So even if the snake is, you know, sitting soaking wet, what you might expect is that like a snake in an environment which is wet might be surrounded by things which are mixed amounts of wet and dry. So like leaf litter, for example, that dew is going to evaporate from the leaf litter at varying speeds, right? So you're going to have this mosaic of wetness the snake's existing in. If you have a snake which is itself uniformly wet all over, it's going to have a uniform sheen across it. And that could be a way for predators or prey to pick out the animal. Yeah. And so what this dark pigment does, they think, is because it's super hydrophobic, it will never be wet. And so it will always present not only the colour which it's supposed to present, but also a lack of sheen, which will further serve to break up the animal's outline when it's damp. Yeah, because basically shadows can't be wet, right? So if you're that's trying a, to pretend to be a yeah, shadow, if you've it. got a soggy shadow, something's up. That's that's going to break the illusion. That feels like a really philosophical thing you've just said in some roundabout way. <laughs> shadows can't be wet. It's like, whoa. Steady. Damn. Wow. What does that mean? Like, what? Well, what does that mean? It means, watch out, there could be a gaboon, <laughs> gaboon viper about. That's, that's what all that they means. They could be. And um, yeah, the other thing that was cool about this, they dusted it with something called red wop, um, uh, which are these hydrophobic particles themselves. It's like, um, it looks like a real, like a powdered dye. And they sprinkled this on the snake. And what they found was that when they misted the snake after dusting it with this red wop, these hydrophobic particles of red wop would actually adhere to the water that was falling on the snake rather than to the snake itself. And so despite the fact that red wop usually doesn't really get on with water because it's hydrophobic, on the snake's skin, it was actually cleaning the red wop off just based on the water vapor that was put on the snake. So I realize this is getting a bit convoluted, but essentially um, what that means is that when the snake gets even remotely damp, the black areas of the scales are exceptionally good at self-cleaning themselves. So not only is this black area not being allowed to look in any way sheeny or shiny, but also if anything else gets on it dust-wise, it will clean itself, which is mm. remarkable. Yeah, it's all about, about maintaining this sort of uncompromised void, yeah. this, this, this darkness to break up the shape. So be that water, be yeah. that mud, be that dust, whatever... It's got to go. And these microstructures yeah. are uh, enabling that. It's, 
pretty remarkable because I mean, once this is this doesn't require active energy from the snake to maintain its its how clean it is. It can just sit there, I guess. And absolutely, it'll clean itself. It can just sit there, ambush position. Black areas will take care of themselves. The pale areas don't matter as much in terms of keeping clean or whatever because they're reflecting the dampness or dustiness or muddiness of the surroundings. Whenever I, mean, I sit in genius. ambush position, I don't get cleaner. <laughs> no, no, usually quite the opposite happens. You just sort of yeah. sit there and get grubby. But I'll tell you what, now that I know that these snakes have this exceptional black, when I look at a picture of them, I kind of much more appreciate that part of the reason I like them is the blacks. And like, just how it really rich is. it is. Yeah, it's just like kind it's, of mesmerizing. It's like that 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 true black material stuff that is man-made but has what nearly a hundred percent absorption of light. And when you see oh, photographs yeah. of that, it looks like someone's just chopped a piece out of the photograph. That's cool. I would and, like to see that. I haven't seen that. What yeah. is was it called? Um, yeah. Type in true black material. I think that pretty it much covers sounds, it. It sounds a little bit like Time Bandit. Time Bandits. Don't touch it. It's true black. (laughs) (laughs) Don't put it in the microwave. Oh my gosh, that's bizarre. It looks like someone's cut a bit out of the space-time continuum. Right? Are you joking me? It looks like someone's someone's just taking an image, right? There's this dude holding this circle of this material with a gas mask on for some reason, which makes it seem all the more intense. And a hairnet, (laughs) in case he's... Maybe he's doing some chefing. But, um... Well, yeah, no, if you get this... a hair on the true black, it completely, you know, destroys the uh, the effect. I'm not surprised. Well, yeah, that makes sense. But, yeah, I mean, it literally looks like some dude is just standing in a lab and then someone's gotten on to paint and just put a black circle <laughs> over it. It's got no... There's no sort of, like, um, depth perception when you look at it because there's no, like, shadow anywhere on it. You're just yeah. like... Okay, that's the blackest thing I ever did see. But if you saw that, you know, little fragments of that in amongst some leaves, you're just going to think that that's a really dark shadow in amongst some leaf litter, aren't you? Like, you wouldn't question it. Yeah, 100%. Super cool. Especially in the sort of high contrast environment that is a forest. Because, you know, eyes can only deal with so much uh, dynamic range. So the difference between the brightest areas and the darkest areas. So if you've been looking at something bright, your eyes will take a bit to adjust to really really dark and vice versa human eyes are pretty good at capturing a a wide dynamic range but if you were i mean i'm sure people have taken photographs in high contrast dark and light situations with you know a phone camera or dslr or something and that really shows how dramatically a contrast between light and dark can can sort of mess with your perception of what you're seeing because your eyes Mm. going to be trying to focus on one bit and not another bit so it I think when you're presented with not knowing what is true black and what is actually a shadow, that's going to be super effective. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's really awesome, actually. So not only are these snakes oh, yeah. really cool ambush predators, but also their skin has all this... Re- like They're just remarkable properties which allow them to remain yeah. camouflaged in all different situations. They're, going to, they're self-cleaning. They're self non-wetting in some areas not <laughs> self that that's non-wetting. a self non-wetting that's about as succinctly as you can put that ben <laughs> nah, nah. fast drying okay 
uh yeah you know they're fast drying they've got this exceptional camouflage which gives the illusion of depth um and i mean they're still one of the coolest looking most badass snakes going so yeah yeah man, west african gaboon viper just brilliant brilliant snake and i thought one of the sort of latter bits you know i mentioned earlier on about they relate this back to how this could help in human technology which yes is always you know somewhat interesting it's not it's not my bread and butter certainly i think it's way cooler that this is an animal doing this to every predator that passes by it um and i wonder if they're even harder to spot than the average snake because of it probably but yeah they say we're rather confident that viper surfaces described above could serve as a model for technological applications such as solar heating of water camouflage textiles uh-oh and optical instruments so you know some warmongering in there but some potentially more useful things like solar heating of water that could be really really great yeah like very low absorption you know keeping yeah. that keeping that energy where you radiation want yep yeah yep okay. so yeah I maybe the yeah, the Gaboon Vipers might yet better humanity. I mean, there's an argument to say they probably already have. Just, yeah, by, we're just already... by their pure joy-bringing look. Yeah. Those faces. You can't look at a Gaboon Viper face and not be... You know, it's going to make you feel better, isn't it? They are they look a like salve for the soul. Yes, yes. A salve for the soul. Well put. So... You know, if you're a snake that looks that cool, you can imagine there's going to be other creatures trying to muscle in and look as cool as you. Oh, naturally. I mean, I'm I'm now angry that I don't look like a gaboon viper. I'm relieved that you don't look like a gaboon viper. Because your you relief did... means nothing to me. <laughs> but if you did, I might get spooked because you know they're dangerous snakes, and I think that that is potentially a mechanism. Another species of animal might use and that leads us on into paper two which is Vaughan Teixeira Kusamba Edmonston and Greenbaum 2019 a remarkable example of suspected Batesian mimicry of gaboon vipers by Congolese giant toads which are scleroferous Channing Eye. And this was published in the Journal of Natural History. Mm, yeah, 2019, this one, right? Yes, indeed. Yeah. And so, Batesian mimicry. We're back to Batesian mimicry. Yeah, I feel like this has come up quite a... If anything, for, for topics of podcasts, this has come up the most frequently. It certainly feels like the most frequent. Yeah, it does feel really frequent. I think it's because... A hell of a lot of snakes do it. Like, yeah, they said something in here. Like, it's like, was it twenty five percent of? Yes, American yes, there was a there was a, a statistic, wasn't there? Um, up to a fifth. Yeah, so up to twenty percent of New World colubrids mimic specifically coral snakes. So it's not, you know, it's a widespread phenomenon. And then obviously, uh, we talk about it in terms of. I guess we've really mainly talked about it in terms of snakes. Actually, thinking about it. Um, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, we've talked... I think there's been numerous new species described which have had suggestions that they're mimics. We've talked about yes. it in crates and wolf snakes, haven't we? We've talked about it in... Uh, yep. 
sure it's come up in Milk and King Snakes. I and think Coral we snakes. did an aposematism thing with frogs at some point, early days, maybe. Yeah, not sure if that was Batesian mimicry. It might not have been. It might, might not have been, have been, but I think that was more generic aposematism. Yeah. Either yeah. way, we did I, the I one... mean, colour comes up quite frequently, I suppose, is what I'm maybe getting at, as opposed to specifically mimicry. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of to be expected, right? Like, brightly coloured animals are some of the coolest animals, so if you've got a choice between studying something that's like orange and red, or something that's brown and tan... I mean, yeah. I'm a sucker for the orange and red. Yeah, I mean... We are merely weak humans that do like our I mean, colourful, yeah. colourful trinkets. Uh, it's coming from a man who's studying a nondescript brown colibri. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> I won't let I haven't that go. Ben. <laughs> never. <laughs> Honestly, never. Never. No, I have let it go. I'm just winding you up. I'm just gushing. <laughs> but um, yeah, so back to our Congolese giant toads, right? So. The team who wrote this paper and their colleagues and associates have been doing fieldwork in the forests of the Eastern Democratic Democratic Republic of Congo for decades. And somewhere along the line, one of the team noticed that these large toads, or even some might say giant toads, looked a lot like the local gaboon vipers. And in this case, it's not the gaboon vipers we've just been discussing, which are the West African gaboon vipers which are Bitis rhinoceros. Yep. That is right, isn't it? Yes, yeah. yep, this is good. Gosh, Carry on. Bitis, yep. Bitis, Bitis. Uh, we're actually on Bitis gabonica, which is the gaboon viper, which are yeah known simply as gaboon vipers because they don't have the West African range. They're found a little bit more south. Um, they're kind of more of a central, obviously south of the Sahara um, and like eastern, no, not eastern, western coast, but the... Yes you know, the bottom chunk of Africa rather than the top bit. And and don't have the little rhino horns, right? Um, no, I don't think they do. No, no, they don't. And yeah, basically the point of this paper is one of the team noticed that they look like these toads and they thought, well, we should probably write something about this, seeing as people are interested in Batesian mimicry. And yeah, this might be a new example of a amphibian mimicking a snake which according to their literature review in the paper there isn't another example of so if you know of an example of a snake be or being imitated by an amphibian as a means of defense nice let's hear it (laughs) this probably might be the first one so yeah yeah so spit it so get in touch i certainly can't think of anything that you can close yeah, whenever I read a paper and it's like, this is the first example of immediately I'm like, mm! <laughs> trying to rack my brain and think of a different one, but yeah, just, no just deal. to be contrary, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a literal, uh, a con- contrarian is something I pride myself on, so something I pride myself <laughs> on being. Um, but yeah, so this these two species, the Congolese giant toad, um, Scleroferis channingi, and Bitis gabonica, the true gaboon viper. Both coexist widely in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Lots of overlap in their known ranges. I think there's 11 different localities where they're in the same place. And so they took a bunch of measurements of both the toads and the snakes and compared the ratios of the different lengths of their bodies to see if there was a similarity in the way the snakes' heads and the toads' bodies were shaped. Mm. Yes. 
so do you want to just sort of jump jump into lines of evidence to sort of suggest this uh, mimicry is occurring? Yes. Well, I mean, lines essentially, of it's just measure a lot of stuff, right? Yeah, basically. Um, I mean, I think, to be honest with you, the best line of evidence is that when you look at them, they look really similar. <laughs> That's a strong line of evidence. I'm, I'm not going to yeah. lie. It's like, hi, I'm actually uh, a predator. And to me, uh, they look pretty similar. Like, at a glance, I'll be like, sweet, Gaboon Viper. And then I'll be like, oh, stupid toad. Stupid um, giant toad. Although it would be, I mean, to be honest, like, that's not fair. It would be cool to see one of these toads. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, one of the things they had in common was, well, one of the things they didn't have in common was the ratio of body length to body width from the toad and head length to head width of the snake. So actually, their entire body isn't that similar in uh, the ratio of the width and length as the snake's head is. But... When you look at the photos of these things side by side, the toad and the snake, the snake, the widest point of the snake's head is actually at the back. So it's kind of this classic viperine triangular shape, whereas the toad, it kind of narrows towards the back. And, you know, maybe that's because a toad has some other inconveniences that a snake's head doesn't have, like like having to have legs attached. (laughs) Yeah, and organs and all those other inconveniences. So I don't think it's fair to judge the entire body of the toad against the snake's head. So what they elected to do instead was to look at the ratio between the, the toad's nose and the, sorry, the distance between the toad's nose and the point on the back, which corresponded to the widest point of the body. So that would be basically artificially creating that triangular shape. And when they compared that, they were quite similar. Yeah, the other the other important bit to that measurement to sort of draw attention to is that so, so Bitters Gabonic have this pale top of the head, largely with this stripe down the middle. Yes. And the mimicking toads, additionally pale with this stripe down the middle. But the latter, what's that, maybe the latter third of the toad? It sort of darkens off and, and trails off in that from that paleness. Mm. And where that that cutoff is between pale and slightly darker coloration is around that wider part of the toad. So it, yeah. it's not only are you getting this triangular shape if you ignore the back half of the toad and just go from the widest point, the colour on top of the toad is accentuating where that cutoff is and, and, and producing that triangular like viper head shape that is literally so well put yeah i mean i hadn't even clocked that to be honest with you that's so that's on point um and you know a lot of these snakes have got two black or dark brown dots they're not super black but they're dark Mm. towards the back of the head the toads have that kind of at that point you've described um which is also i guess demarcating the head mimicry from just yeah, these are my toad legs. Because if you, if Don't you again, you you're picturing this. Let's let's say you're a a relatively tall bird or decent sized mammal walking through the forest. You're probably going to be seeing a gaboon viper from the top, right? Oh, so, yeah. in amongst leaf litter, maybe that's all you need. You're going to pick out the brightest areas instantly, as it's you know it's exaggerated with these these dark areas and stuff like that. So maybe that shape is all you need, and the actual shape of the animal is pretty much immaterial because the camouflage is going to break up that overall body shape anyway. Yeah. So if you're just picking out that pale triangular shape, maybe, you know, good enough. Not going to mess with it. Not going to take the risk. No, so certainly. It, it does make sense. Yeah, it does. Um, 
like I said, there were some difference in the animals, but I think it is fair to say the colour patterns are quite similar. Um, one other thing about the toads, which is unusual, is that they have quite smooth skin, you know, as you know better than anyone. Toads have pretty warty skin, for the most part. They're Not naturally so. warty animals. They are indeed. And actually, even these Congolese giant toads, when they're juveniles, they're much watier than when they're adults. Mm. So they undergo a dewatification process, which you could argue is to allow them to look more like a gaboon viper because the gaboon viper's head is covered in miniature scales, which, from a distance, give it a much smoother appearance. It looks like the head of a snake, which would be quite nice to just give a very small stroke to just to see. But obviously you wouldn't because they'd be incredibly deadly. The two-inch fangs and yes, probably I mean, short two inch, patience. Two-inch fang wound, like that's that's a stab wound in addition to some, you know... Yeah. Anticoagulative well, hemorrhagic venom. Yeah, yeah. Five centimetres of t- tooth going into you. And it's probably... A, I mean, I don't know how fast these guys bite, but if it's anything like the... Uh, God, what episode was that that we were talking about? The, the uh, strike speed the of rat snakes strikes. and vipers. Yeah, you know, blink of an a while eye. ago. That's, and with the weight of that head behind it, weight of that viper behind it, yeah, you, uh, you're you going to know. It's not going to be a slow strike, is it? <laughs> no, doubtful. Yeah, the chubby, comical appearance belies their true intent as deadly predators. So, right. yeah. One thing which is interesting as well is these toads are probably toxic themselves. Mm. So there was they, they do talk a little bit in the paper. They do address this and they say, you know, so there is an argument for malarian mimicry where multiple animals present the same... Um, colour pattern, combination, whatever it might be, shape, in order to make the image of what is dangerous more widespread so that it's more easily recognisable by animals immediately. You know, if you've got five species using the same warning colour and they're all going to poison you, the likelihood is that you're going to take even more notice and that notice is going to be across a wider range. And that's sort Um, of complemented by this idea of potentially them evolving convergently. So it might not be the case one mimicking another, but more that they've both moved towards each other and met in a sort of nice middle ground that benefits both, perhaps. Yeah, it could well be. It's difficult to pick apart causality in something like this, but uh, hey, you know. It's just cool. And they actually present the idea, which was new to me, of... Malarian versus Batesian mimicry as a continuum rather than like a, a black yes. and white decision. Yeah, which I really like that. I, I really enjoyed that. That's like, yeah, everything in nature is always going to be a continuum. You just have to realise. Well, it's so, always going to be a trade-off, isn't it? Between yeah. how toxic you need to be to sort of back up the promise of something and how much you can sort of get away with not being toxic because somebody else is putting in the effort. So it's Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very, very interesting in that regard. Yeah, I think it's definitely possible that in the fullness of time, at least one Gaboon Viper has benefited from being misidentified as a toad. Right. There must be some animal which predates on both of them and has seen it and thought, ah, those Not worth the effort. They taste bad. They make my tum-tum sore. Yeah. I'm not going to eat that. And actually the snake was saved. So, yeah, you know, I guess that would be the definition of malarian mimicry. But the what they contest in this paper is that the benefit is really probably skewed towards the toad. Well, and they, they 
bring up a really nice example, well, at least an example I quite like. Um, with everybody knows monkeys hate snakes. This is a this is a well known prejudice that monkeys have, just in general, yeah. or primates and many apes, many apes. Yeah, yeah. they just hate snakes, and mm. you know, there's all these sort of suggestions that maybe that's how how even uh, ape and primate visual uh, acuity sort of was pushed along a little bit by needing to recognize snakes and stuff. And in in this part of Africa where they are, there are multiple uh, monkey slash primate species that are very acutely aware of gaboon vipers specifically, um, which was the one that really hated them. They can spot them. Uh, Sutta mangabees. Apparently, they will ignore the vast majority of snakes, but when they see when they see bitters, Oh boy, they'll be yelling and a screaming. And oh, that's, really? Yeah. It's, that's just a lovely anecdotal. I don't know. Well, just I suppose a lovely anecdote of how dramatic bitters uh, impacts are on on apes and primates and stuff. Why go through all this effort? Why go through this effort for bitters specifically, as opposed to other snakes? And it sort of shows that it's been such a pressure that they can pick out bitters specifically. Yeah. Because otherwise you just do it for every snake, no worries. Okay, too many snakes, so it ha- it forces perhaps this more refined knowledge of what snakes to worry about and what not. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's just the perfect example. Seeing that predatory response, I mean, presumably those monkeys, I don't know about monkeys, do they eat meat? I, I'm pretty positive. Yeah, they, they're known to eat frogs and stuff. Oh, really? Okay, which right really on. So there sort you go, of yeah. doubles it up, yeah. Yeah, oh, that's cool. So they're frog eaters who freak out when they see a gaboon viper. Yeah, I think it. I think it's. I think it's assumed that they eat vertebrates. Um, they've got several other species. They've got other species of uh, mangabe that eat vertebrates for sure, along with baboons okay. and blue monkeys and potus. Potto. You're just saying words now. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the point is, there's vertebrate eating primates. Specifically, they will take amphibians. So that's a really nice uh, motivator for the toad to look like a snake. Because a snake is also known to elicit this really pronounced response in other mangabe yeah. species, so I find that a really convincing. Okay, it's it's perhaps quite anecdotal, but a really convincing mechanism for for why this toad would would go for a snake over something else or produce something more, uh, mm. maybe generically aposomatic, you know, like like bright so- coloration or something. So the monkeys are freaking out, right? They're freaking out when they see the snake. By extension, they might well be freaking out when they see the toad. But let's say right. this. The yep. monkey realizes, that is a toad. I think it's a toad. I'm going to pick it up and have a little nibble on it. Well, the mimicry does not end with appearance. Yes. So when handled, these Congolese giant toads, they typically make a hip hissing noise, which actually resembles the sound of air being slowly released from a balloon. Um <laughs> I mean, that noise, that noise, I mean, that could be a highly variable noise depending on what you're doing with and the, the size of hole. That could be like a, and, you know, but you know, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Presumably it's like a... A toad-sized balloon. Yeah. Um, which apparently is very similar to the hiss of Bitis gabonica, which makes sense. So not only are they looking like them, but also when you pick them up, they'll make this hissing noise. And moreover, uh, there was a paper all the way back in 1924 by Noble, and they stated that when disturbed, the quiescent toad would play dead 
lowering the head to the ground and drooping the prominent upper eyelids. So playing dead, lowering the head to the ground, that could actually be an attempt to appear more viperine in shape in terms of their body versus the snake's mm. head. Um, the front limbs aren't propping up the body and it could even look like the sort of cocked head, which apparently uh, Bitis Gabonica do when they're threatening to strike. So, you know, they're making themselves not only look like the snake, but also the snake performing a specific behavior. Uh, so really, yeah, there's kind of another layer to this mimicry, which is remarkable. Yeah, to have, again, it, it it's sort of building on multiple lines of evidence to really, I don't know, I present a very convincing case for it, I think, because what are the, as you start adding more and more of these sort of odd similarities, well, perhaps not odd, but these similarities, you start thinking, well, this is seeming less and less like just a coincidence or convergent evolution to something something very similar because there's these other things that i don't know maybe they're all convergent you know that's mm. that's possible but the way they marry up and you're just looking at these toads like i don't know i get it i i see the i see the similarities and i think if you're in the forest where you've got these high contrast light situation you've got a very high uh cost of getting this wrong i.e thinking you want a toad and you're picking up a snake what why take the risk you're you're going to err on the side of caution because the the cost benefit analysis is sort of going to push you to being being more conservative of your choices right not touching it yeah it might be a you know it might be a toad you might yeah. be fine but if it's you're a snake you're gonna really really regret it is yeah, is absolutely. getting a toad worth it worth that risk probably not not to me so <laughs> i would say that is Congolese giant toads and two varieties of gaboon viper. Yeah, I think we've done. I think we've done justice there. Um, some really cool papers. Uh, nice to talk about some vipers. Gave me an excuse to Google Bitis gabonica and just this rhinoceros and learn the difference. Glory. Yeah, yeah, they're just super cool snakes. So, should we move on to the hotly anticipated, as always, species of the bi week? Yes, what do we have? What do we have? We have another toad. We do indeed. Oh boy. So this is Kiriako Marquez, Bandera, Agawal, Stanley, Bauer, Heineke and Blackburn, 2018. A new earless species of Pointophrynus from the Serra de Neve Inselberg, Namib province, Angola. So this mm. was published in Zookeys. They can't hear you coming. They don't know what's going on. They hate music. They don't understand the point of it. Yeah, they see people dancing. They think they're insane. Yeah, and so an Inselberg, of course, is like a sky island. Just a nice name for it. So this is the genus Pointophrynus. They're true toads from the family Buffonidae. Up to now, there were 10 species, although one of them... Pointophrynus lugensis may actually belong elsewhere because there was a paper in 2017 that suggested they're more closely related to the genus Mertensophryni, 
Um, they have quite small paratoid glands, generally speaking, and aside from the aforementioned Pointophrynus lugensis, they occur in sub-Saharan Africa, which is why they're relevant to this episode, because so do gaboon vipers and Congolese giant toads. Mm. And yeah, the species is being described from the Serra de Neve Inselberg in northern Namib province in Angola. Um, we were in this province last bye week. We were, right? Yeah. This That lizard came from here. The little... Uh, what, a, what an odd coincidence. Completely unplanned. Wow. Imagine that. Well, we did say, did we not, that the Namib province was probably a hotbed of undiscovered biodiversity. Well, yes. here it is. Yep. They, they were right. And... They were completely right, and um, you want to know what these what these little toads get up to? They are found under moist soil. They they basically oh. just chill out on moist soil under rocks and leaf litter. I mean, that's a classic toad move, isn't it? It is so toady of a thing Rooting to do. Rooting around in soggy areas. Um, they are usually found at dusk in a semi-open miombo forest, and mm. so like miombo is the kind of savanna-looking low trees which. When if you Google Miombo, you you know you'll think, oh yeah, like that is kind of if you have in your head like a sort of savannery forest environment, you'll recognise it. You'll have something in there from a nature documentary, yeah. <laughs> and you're right. That's what so what you expect is what you get. Um, uh, yeah, sparse Miombo they call it in this area, and yeah, they've described a new species from uh, this Sarah de Neve Inselberg. So yeah, should we talk about the name? Yes, yes. You, you. It's a very long genus name. Did you have anything on uh, what the what the genus means? I did not. No. Pointophrynus. I I I think pointon, because you know the other the other genus is Mertensophryni. Well, yeah. Mertens is that's some herpetologist because of like Mertens monitor and all that stuff. So uh... I have a suspicion that pointon. But then Ophrynus. Does Frynus mean f- toes or something? I have a feeling it might mean something quite broad and generic like that. Frynus meaning... Frynus means toad. <laughs> so yeah, pointino Frynus could just mean pointons toads. Well, that's... that. Okay, yeah, all right. I'll roll with that. We never described what this little fella looked like. I mean, it's only level two, 28 to 33, 34 millimeters SPL. So, you know, these oh. aren't big brutes. These are, these are little cute toads. Fit in your palm. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't even call it a particularly traditional toad shape. They're quite, quite a slim toad. Hmm. Um, yeah, well, quite I, long. I say traditionally toad shape. Like that's so, that's so heavy with what I consider a t- traditional toad or bufo bufo or something like that. If you lived in yeah, South I America mean, you you might think one of those those golden toads is a traditional toad shape when they're they're very leggy and long. So maybe yeah, compromise and go somewhere in the middle and that's the sort of body shape you're thinking about with these guys. I'd just like to commend you for noticing your uh, your own preconceptions about toads. My positionality on very, toads. It's very woke of you. Yeah, I I try dude. I try. Yeah, man. It's good. But yeah, you're totally right. Skinny toad, um, yellow eyeshadow, nice big black eye, horizontal pupil. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of a mottled grey, white, rusty red. Yeah, um, it's like a black and white toad that has rusted. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really beautiful. Yeah. Um, 
And yeah, the paratoid glands are what I would consider to be quite small as well, which is a descriptor of the entire genus. So yeah, it's a neat little thing. Um, On its flanks, you can almost see like the warts almost give the appearance of scales. It's quite cool. It almost looks like the the big scales on the neck of like a... A, uh, an iguana or something it's yes quite, quite yes strange. that's that's actually a very good description the iguana like crackling almost mm. yeah yeah but yeah nice nice little toad and um yeah i mean it's got a great name frosty <laughs> yeah so they've called it <laughs> i love that. they've called it point point i can't do this one without reading it pointinophrinus pachnodes which means, Pachnodes means frosty. Yeah, it's used as an adjective. So it's a reference not only to the cool climate at the higher elevation where the species occurs, but also the fact that Serra de Neve, which is the port and also the name of the Inselberg, translates to no, mountain of snow. No, I think that doesn't that mean Sierra de Neve is Portuguese? Oh, what an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> like, port, it's a, it's a sky island. You can't have a port on a sky island, can you? I thought maybe there was, like, a port nearby. I don't know. No, I'm pretty sure wow. it's Portuguese. They should have just said Portuguese. That's, you know... no. They, I mean, it's probably uh, insinuated by the fact that it is immediately preceded by something which is in Portuguese. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. Easy mistake. Yeah, thanks, Ben. So, um, yeah, they're going to call it... So, basically, yeah, Mountain of Snow, Frosty Toad. It's cool. And they suggest calling it the Serra de Neve Pygmy Toad. Or... And this, presumably, is Portuguese. Uh, well, not Sapo presumably. Pigmo... It, it, says, <laughs> it says it's Portuguese. Yeah, they actually use the word Portuguese. Sapo Pygmo da Serra da Neve. That is the Portuguese in a flawless Portuguese accent. <laughs> Uh, no <laughs> that's all I've got to say about this toad yeah they got some cool CT scan stuff is it CT scans I yeah don't know. yeah they're CT scans yeah. high resolution computed tomography reconstructions yeah they're flipping great they are so high um, definition it's absolutely mad like I'm sure yeah. I can see that better than I could see a bone in my hand like, well it's as because they're the bigger than was... what you could see in your hand so yes ah uh, wow <laughs> and there's a CT scan of one that's got eggs in it. Yeah. Um, and you can see the eggs. Yeah, I think that oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. It's superb. Who needs to take um, real specimens anymore? Literally, yeah. Just CT scan these little rude boys. Magic. And there's some photos of the habitat. I mean, it looks spectacular. Um, really, really cool. Like savannah, and then leading up to a massive Inselberg. And it just, you know, it's rising out of the ground. Um, beautiful, rusty-coloured rocks, very similar to the coloration of the toad. And, yeah, forest just rising up out of sort of savannah environment, roundabout. Mm. It just looks beautiful. And the very the very tippy top has got sort of scrubs and rocks where they found individuals of this toad. Yeah, really, really beautiful. A so, beautiful yeah. toad in a beautiful location. Yeah, very cool. Um, so yeah, I think that's about it for the species of the bio week. So yeah, Pointinophrynus pachnodes. Congratulations on being described. Welcome, welcome to the scientific mainstream. Mm. So, have you got any other business for this week? 
I have absolutely no any other business for this week. I've got none either, except for saying thanks very much to our new Patreon, SC. Big up yourself. Thank you very much. Yeah, much appreciated that. Um, If anyone else wants to become our Patreon, you can. Patreon.com slash Herp Highlights. There's numerous benefits and, yeah, make us feel a nice warm feeling down in our gutty wax. But don't worry if you don't want to. And that's all the business. (laughs) Yeah, don't worry if you don't want to. But it is very appreciated. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's about it. I've just want to say thanks and if you want to get in touch with us you can herphighlights at gmail.com or we're on facebook and twitter um yeah that's it thanks for listening yeah thank you very much for listening <laughs>